Our sponsor today is GLSA. For those non-members who may be listening in, GLSA or Group Legal Services Association is a professional membership representing the legal services plan industry and provider attorneys. And joining GLSA is just a good way for solos and small firms to increase their business. Check us out at glsaonline.org. Okay, my name is Tom Martin. I'll be your host today. Our podcast today is Puerto Rican Legal Tech is on the Rise with Diego Alcala. Nice. You said that perfectly. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm very excited to, to have you on the program today, Diego. Um, you are the owner of the law firm uh, Defensoria Legal and founder of Puerto Rico Legal Tech, and as well as an adjunct professor at Inter-American University School of Law, and you're launching a legal tech consulting business. Yes. Correct? Yes. Correct. Well, and all of that. that <laughs> and that's a lot of stuff. Uh, that's fantastic. Welcome, Diego. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. And thank you for saying Defensoria Legal and my last name correctly. It's a great pleasure to be with you. I look forward to just talking and explaining to you what we're doing down here in Puerto Rico. Yeah. So, uh, I'm, I'm very excited to to hear more about Puerto Rico as, as I shared with you uh, before we started. GLSA is actually having its annual conference in Puerto Rico at the end of April. And, uh, you know, hope to meet up with you then and uh, see Puerto Rico in real life because it'll be the first time. Absolutely. I'll be more than happy to give you a tour, take you outside of traditional tourist spots, which is San Juan. There are so much more out there. But I'll look forward to um, meeting you in Puerto Rico. More than welcome. Right on. Um, and I, I know that, you know, Puerto Rico recently is, and not only recently, has had a you know, series of challenges with, with earthquakes and, and storms. And um, how are things right now? Um, Puerto Rico right now, as to natural disasters, is concerned, we have already um, done the hurricanes. We mm -hmm. still have a bunch of people without any proper housing. We recently got hit by a maraud of earthquakes starting from December 28th all the way through January, I would say the end of January. They're estimating approximately 4,000 tremors in wow. different categories. On January 7th, it was the strongest one. Um, which, which affected the southwest of Puerto Rico. Um, so again, we do have a bunch of people that have been displaced and um, there's a constant fear, right, as to what could happen because we're not used to earthquakes in Puerto Rico. And as you might expect, that has had collateral effects on education, on government resources, which to start off with, we are a bankrupt uh, island who is in the process of a bankruptcy proceeding, um, facing austerity measures being imposed by a fiscal control board. Uh, so, uh, yes, besides all that yeah. love and fame, there's plenty of good stuff going on, too, in Puerto Rico. Well, that's we're good. good. We're doing good. We, we, we're starting to get ready for our national pastime, which is elections coming up this November <laughs> Uh, we only get to vote for local elections. We do not get to vote for the U.S. Uh, elections, though. So, so huh. uh, 
yeah, we don't get full benefits. Wow, I I actually didn't know that 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 oh, citizens, yes, that's, that's, that that citizens of the country would not get to vote for the president. We that could be an entire different podcast. If you yeah. want to go there, we'll get political. No, 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 but, no, no, no. We'll, we'll hold off on that for now. But uh, <laughs> but suffice it to say that I, I think a lot of uh, I think that a lot of people right now, at least with you know the coronavirus uh, concern and uh, uh, crossing the United States, maybe feel uh, you know, a little more empathetic to where, um, you know, f for things that, that affect us all. Um, and, you know, like I'm, you, you were mentioning that the earthquakes have been, um, affecting Puerto Rico from, you know, for months now. And, and that's something that doesn't really, I think, get through, through the news. No, oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, it was just like the the major one that 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 broke through, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, the more I think that we could be, uh, you know, mindful of of uh, of each other, the better. Absolutely. So, um, I, all right. I appreciate I appreciate you um, having me on just to have the opportunity just to have a voice from Puerto Rico. So I do appreciate that, Tom. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Um, so. Let's talk a little bit about you. I, I'd like to learn a little bit more about about your story. Sure. Um, so, so where where did you grow up? In a, All right. So, just real short recap. I am from Puerto Rico. I'm from the South Ponce, Puerto Rico, which is the second largest city in Puerto Rico, um, the unofficial capital of Puerto Rico. Although everyone else disagrees, I think I'm from the greatest city in Puerto Rico. Uh -huh. No. Um, uh, upon graduating, I did do an undergrad in a small school out in the Boston region called Babson College, it's a business school. And then yeah. after that, I did some traveling around the United States doing different logistical work. Um, I worked for the, uh, the Olympic torch relay back in 2002, um, which basically it was an event that took the Olympic torch to Salt Lake City. And before I got there, I went through 46 states. Um, wow. In 64 days. Yes. So from Atlanta, oh. it went all over the United States, including Alaska. Um, and it, I've been very fortunate. I, I, I think I'm only missing Alaska and North Dakota as a, a <laughs> visiting uh, the United States. Then um, in 2000. Early 2000s, I went back to Puerto Rico, came back, and uh, started law school with the idea that with my business background and experience, I could become a corporate lawyer. Um, and then I took criminal law, and that completely changed my perspective. I, I figured um, that the criminal procedure class was very uh, influential on me because I learned what a constitution was, and I learned what the government can and cannot do. and when I grew up, uh, cops would routinely stop me, not everyone else, just me. Um, and they thought I was the one that did something. And going through the class uh, in criminal law, I realized how much of uh, protection is needed against overreach by the government. So I figured if that happened to me, and I was lucky enough to have been raised in an upper middle class family, and I have an education and everything, I imagine what happens to the people that don't have those resources, right? So I, I, I 
I want to say I, I was convinced then that I wanted to become a public defender. Um, I don't come from a family of lawyers. My parents are actually doctors. So it was a, a, a weirder transition for them, right, to understand that their son is going to be fighting the government when it comes to that and protecting people accused of crimes. But that was the route I took. I was lucky enough to be hired by the largest public defender's office in Puerto Rico. I worked there for two years, and then I decided to do a master's degree uh, in international law and in human rights. Because obviously, if there's something that pays less than public defense work, it, it is human rights. So that's, <laughs> that's the route I took. Um, and then upon graduating from American University, I passed the Virginia bar and was able to secure a job at the Fairfax County Public Defender's Office, which I stayed there for approximately four years, mm. moved back to Puerto Rico when my wife and I um, had our first child and went on to practice at the Federal Public Defender's Office for the District of Puerto Rico. Um, I lasted there uh, for approximately one year, and then I, mm. I went off with a, a law school buddy of mine we opened uh, a boutique law firm. And through that experience is when I started interacting with the Puerto Rico startup ecosystem. It was starting at that moment. Uh, we had our first accelerator. We were having laws designed to attract investment in place in Puerto Rico. And that interaction between our law firm and the accelerator exposed me to the possibilities of what uh, technologies uh, are coming out and and the such. So much so that I got the uh, entrepreneur bug and I started developing my own startup, um, which we launched. We, I say we because it was just me, but when I say we, it was a group effort between myself and my family and my friends. Um, mm -hmm. And it was, it was basically a marketplace for lawyers to get the resources that they needed in order to effectively run a litigation practice. So let's say you're starting off as a new attorney, you may not have all the contacts for, let's say, uh, court reporters or interpreters or message couriers or other services that are integral to your practice, but because you just don't, you don't work in big law, you don't have those contacts. So I figured let's, let's see if we can do something with this. And of course I launched in August, 2017. And a week after I launched, we got hit with Hurricane Irma and then Hurricane Maria, which obviously had a huge impact on my strategy and my success. Mm -hmm. But I learned a lot, right? That's the best I can do. Uh, from 2017 to 2019, I iterated the product and did as much as we could. But uh, it was obvious that it was not picking up the traction that it was necessary in order to continue either the time or money. So uh, last year, May 23rd, I decided to shut it down, which was great because I celebrated my birthday that day. So I... I, I did it the best way possible that I could think of, right? Um, but by then, I started getting involved with Twitter and legal tech Twitter. 
And I started seeing so many other people, including yourself, how you guys have been going through your journey. And I learned how many other companies out there also don't succeed in this space. So I figured I'm in good company. I shouldn't be afraid of this. And I should keep going at it. And through that perspective, it's that in the past year and a half, what I've been trying to do is to learn as much as possible. I've been in, I've been, um, studying artificial intelligence, machine learning, data science, and how to create or adapt that technology into the practice of law. Um, I started Puerto Rico Legal Tech, which is basically a community group similar to legal hackers in Puerto Rico Mm -hmm. with the effort of uniting developers, startup owners, and attorneys and community members to build new technology tools, to integrate them to the law practice, and to um, improve the access to justice gap that we have. We've had a few uh, meetings, and in the process, I've been able to collaborate with with other uh, persons, and I've been trying to play with different um, technologies. For example, um, I know this is your your field uh, as to chatbots, mm-hmm. and I'm um, like I'm trying to come up with a way in which the idea for a chatbot in my use case came from the realization that I cannot um, physically or emotionally give my clients' families the attention they deserve, and what I mean by that is my clients are mostly court appointed defendants in criminal cases. Most of them are actually incarcerated. Um, And the families of these individuals would call me up just to ask me basic questions. When is the next court date? How is the case looking? Um, Et cetera, et cetera. But I started noticing that most of these questions could be resolved in a frequently asked questions section, or I just can't talk to them about it. For example, the specifics about a case that would be breaching client confidentiality. Uh, but there were many questions that, that could be solved in a way uh, that was very easy. Now, my concern was, wasn't that I, I didn't know the answers or that I wasn't necessarily available. It was that going through life, right? You cannot necessarily uh, even though you try, you may have a bad moment, right? So you either decide not to pick up the call and speak to the family, or if you pick up the call, you're not, you may not be as empathetic as you want to be or as professional as you want to be. So in, in that, with that in mind, I started playing around and see if I can come up with a chatbot that could resolve that particular issue. Um, and then the chatbot would... Um, allow me to become available to my client's family uh, whenever they felt it was necessary for me to be available for them in order to narrow the amount of questions that I would need to actually answer. Um, right. So uh, as you know, the purpose of a chatbot, it's, it's, it's definitely to, it's, it's more consistent, it's more available it's program as programmable. You can you can tailor the needs once you identify what are the needs, right? And you can learn and reiterate and keep improving on it. Um, so that was my first reaction and how we can improve on that, right? Um, mm-hmm. 
unfortunately, I wasn't able to launch it because we got hit by the um, earthquakes. And me being uh, so uh, eager to do 103 things instead of one, I started thinking, well, why don't we look at the possibility of creating a disaster aid chatbot? What I mean by that is many people, in my experience in Puerto Rico, from the hurricane and the earthquake response was the lack of information coming, lack of official information, which was actually more desperate, made the situation worse than the worst possible outcome, right? That, that desperation of not knowing, that lack of um, direction was very uh, traumatic and stressful, and it is still stressful. We look yeah. at... Sometimes not sometimes not knowing can can be more yeah, it could be scarier than correct than what what actually is. Yeah. Correct, correct. And if you look at, for example, the coronavirus response, I'm pretty sure that if we sat down and identified ten locations, there may be similarities in some of those locations, but there may be obvious gaps of information in others. Um, the original response from our officials here was was horrible i mean when the first respond uh first news came out that there was a region in china the response from the secretary of health was oh china is so far away and people were like are you kidding me this isn't like a person that you can use um sewn off and, and not what are the official routes what what do we do in the event right. of a b and c well, it's it's not it's not 1965 anymore, you know. Like with, correct. Like the, the world theory. is so small now with jet theory. theory. You know, I mean, jet I mean just, as you said, you're exactly that's on point. We have other ways of finding information out. We don't depend necessarily on the government. With that in mind, my 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 thinking was, why don't we do something similar to a chatbot, or actually a chatbot technology, which it would just give you simple information regarding the earthquakes, right? So for example, there are organizations in Puerto Rico along with FEMA and the American Bar Association that have united to work with what's called the Disaster Aid Hotline. A person that might have uh, been affected by the earthquake can call this hotline and see what type of uh, help they can receive. Well, mm -hmm. I mean, in that particular use case, my thinking was you, we can do this as a triage way, right? We can then put this up front and provide them with preliminary information and then inform them that they do or they may qualify. And if they do or may qualify, you can then send them directly to the particular agency, uh, I mean, legal group that's helping out with all their information already pre-programmed. And that way, the people that are going to provide the legal assistance will already have the information and can be actually a little bit more useful um, in that capacity. So, so that was my second iteration of the product. And obviously, um, between the hours of 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., I haven't been able to complete the project. But that's, that's the type of program that I'm hopeful. Hello? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm hopeful that 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 something like that happens in the chatbot world. 
um yeah i could i could (laughs) (laughs) yeah i could definitely see the need for it um especially with um i don't know it seems like natural disasters are happening more often than what i remember as as a kid Mm -hmm. uh like even just um you know with with nashville and the tornadoes that that tore through uh downtown so very you know very worried about that uh having friends there and checking on twitter to see that they're okay and then facebook has its ability to you know check yourself in is okay and to have you know to have an an app or a chatbot or some some way of addressing that concern that could be spun up for like wherever the latest location is that uh you know has that has that happening that would be useful i think for not only the people that are affected but also the the people that care about them to know that they're okay exactly exactly and that's very important because i remember during the hurricane season in puerto rico when maria hit um Obviously, communication went out, but it went out to a degree that, as you just mentioned, the people outside of Puerto Rico felt the desperation of not knowing. Just exactly that experience of what you're saying uh, reproduced that by by an uh, exponential number. Um, and and yeah, you can't solve for everything, but certainly this would provide people an opportunity to to get information, as we talked about earlier. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. I think, you know, there are a number of things that I hear about that are kind of tools like technological tools in theory, and they sound like they provide some incremental amount of efficiency and they're kind of cool and all that. But what you're describing, it really deals with the heart, you know, like it deals with, you know, people caring about each other and wanting to, to help each other. And I think when you are able to solve a problem like that, you could really help a lot of people, not yeah. just uh, not just help efficiency. Yeah, and one of the things that, that on that same line, if I can add, um, there is the technology right now that you can train these systems to recognize cognitive rec- uh, recognition. So basically the um, computer software could be trained to recognize if the user is a user that is anxious that is depressed, that may feel um, some sort of uh, attack going on them. Um, Mm -hmm. Imagine then if we can recognize that from the initial call, then we could provide a screening or immediate help in a way that hasn't been necessarily been addressed earlier. It It could allow someone to receive proper care earlier. Uh, the person doesn't necessarily need to type, I need help because I'm suicidal. But by the way they're typing or what they're typing, you can train these systems to actually I- identify that. And it will, and it may provide that person with the assistance if they want it to. Um, if, you, if that's true, then in a way, I, I look forward to actually training systems in which anyone out there, right? A person that has a legal issue or an issue may type into their own chatbot what situation they're going through or voice it, right? Um, And then the system may recognize that the situation that they're describing is actually something that may require legal assistance. Because one of the issues that we have in this space, A2J, access to justice, is the fact that people don't know that their situation could be 
assistant with an, uh, an attorney or that their situation requires an attorney. That's there's a big gap of understanding that. Yeah. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, we talked earlier about David Caruso and his project with with the Stanford University as to um, I believe it's called Learned Hands, in which they are yep. um, training a machine learning model to assist people who just to identify if a, a use case requires or does not require a particular type of attorney, right? So mm -hmm. imagine if that system exists and as they're planning to do launch it as an API, then you can connect two or three different systems to that. You can have um, this API attached to a chatbot, which would recognize the language that you're typing and would translate that then to the attorney uh, as a person or as a person that needs X, Y, and Z. And unfortunately, us as attorneys, us, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't know if you're actually an attorney. Um, we're not yep. very good at sometimes recognizing or actually being patient with a person uh, as to what they actually need. We may hear a story and think of it from our perspective while we're missing out on other perspectives as well. So there's a communication issue um, that may be solved from the customer, from the user into providing that um, problem, right? And it could translate that in legal speak, right? But if that's true, it's also true the other way around, right? We can now get, <laughs> help a lawyer communicate with a potential user or client in a way that will translate the legal speak back in a way that's user-friendly. One of the things that we always fault attorneys for is that it's very difficult to turn off the legalese. Right. Um, and we sound intimidating and, and as opposed to helpful. And a lot of people are put down by that. A lot of people rather not deal with attorneys because they don't feel comfortable in the way or manner in which the attorney speaks to that uh, potential client. And it's just human nature. And it's not, I don't think most attorneys do it on purpose. I don't think it's, it's a matter of that's what I want to do. But it's a matter that happens, and it, it unfortunately discourages people from seeking legal help. No, I definitely agree. There's a, yeah, there, there's a gap both in people understanding that it's a legal issue that they can deal with, and then secondly, when and if they have to deal with the lawyers to, to understand the lawyers. Correct. <laughs> um, yeah, lawyers, and including myself amongst that, uh um yeah they sometimes have difficulty just speaking in in plain english uh for people even my wife is a lawyer and she's like you're not actually talking to me right now you do know you're cross-examining me and i'm like no i'm actually not and she's like you are and 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 that's that's true i mean we get into these habits um that we only speak with other lawyers most of the time if you're in court or if you're in a small uh, in a, a law firm, you, you get to speak with your peers, and you forget that most people don't speak like us. So um, a tool, or just thinking, right, uh, of, of this possibility is pretty pretty um, exciting for me, right? Because then, in theory, you can have a particular set of lawyers have different chatbots for different situations, and you can have these chatbots go back and forth 
until you actually meet the client that you can help because of what you offer. Vice versa, the client can then locate a particular um, attorney that has the skill set. Um, and all that happening at the same time um, at the speeds that we usually don't associate with a legal profession. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that in the future something like that can exist. So, um, but that's one of the things I stay up late at night thinking, um, unfortunately. Help me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, I, I completely identify with that. I'm a night owl myself. Um, share with um, Yeah, sorry. Oh, it's all right. Um, share with, with the listeners like who may not be familiar with Puerto Rico, like what is, what is the legal landscape there? Like are, okay. how many lawyers are there? Is there, is there a lot of litigation is, you know, like, what is it? What's the, the lay of the land? So Puerto Rico has had lawyers since the days of the colonial Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, were our first people that came over to invade um, our Colegio de Abogados, which is a professional guild for lawyers, has been around since 1840, and it's the longest um, professional guild, I think, in the hemisphere, if I'm not mistaken, or one of the oldest oldest ones. Um, so there's a tradition of having lawyers in Puerto Rico dating back the 19th century. And we grew up through the 19th century under the Spanish crown, so we have the Napoleonic Code implemented in, originally in Puerto Rico. When okay. the uh, United States um, got Puerto Rico through the Spanish-American War in 1898, then what happened was that there was a series of um, experiments, let's put it that way. Um, and what we have today, it's what's called a unique situation. Unique in a way. We're very similar to Louisiana. We have right. a Spanish civil code when it comes to uh, what's called the um, interpersonal relationships, right, between people. So that would be family law, estate law, contracts, um, and other particulars that are two individuals are, are involved. When it comes to matter of the state, that means administrative law, constitutional law, and criminal law, what primarily we have is the United States uh, common law and the influence that has that has had in one way it's because as part of the United States uh, we are um, obligated to follow Supreme Court precedent but also because there there's the development of these types of laws comes from the United States the development of criminal law it's primarily when we when the Americans came to Puerto Rico they implemented the California criminal code from 1904. That was our original criminal code, as it is considered a criminal code from the common law purposes. So we have this tradition of having both systems, creating our own little jurisprudence in Puerto Rico. Uh, so, so it's very similar to the states. You go in, you file a lawsuit, uh, a complaint, and then you serve the parties. And, and procedure procedurally is very similar. One particular difference is that in civil cases in Puerto Rico, there's not a right to a jury trial. And in criminal cases, you do have a jury trial, but you don't need unanimous verdicts. So that's one 
significant mm. difference if you can if you if I can identify you. Obviously, there's substantive differences, but that's mm. that's that's we have courts of first instance, which would be the local courts. Then you have an appellate level, you have a Supreme Court level, and from there you go to the United States Supreme Court. So that's how the legal system works. Um, as far as the legal professionals in Puerto Rico, there there was a report last year from a local startup, uh, legal startup, um, Microjuris, and they they reported that there were approximately, I want to say, fourteen thousand registered attorneys, but nine thousand actual attorneys um, that practice law, um, mm-hmm. and litigation has been reduced, and a lot of it has to do with current economic situations, right? We've been in a recession since 2006, 2007. Um, and obviously it was aggravated by the hurricanes. So we have had a lot of migration from Puerto Rico to the United States, a lot of people leaving the island. Um, but overall, uh, the legal profession, it's a healthy profession. It's not as active as it was. I think we're going through a significant slump, but Law schools, we have three law schools here graduating um, every year, approximately 200 new attorneys, which they have to sit for for the Puerto Rican bar. Um, and it, it, everything else runs very similar to what you might expect in, a, in the United States. We have in Puerto Rico major corporations, Microsoft is down here. Of course. No, we have, we have it's, it's like everything else. Um, you don't need a visa to come down here if you have a U.S. citizens, um, and it's very similar uh, when it comes to that. But we also do have our peculiarities, just like every place. Everyone, we have a Puerto Rican distinctive Puerto Rican food, a uh, very uh, distinctive and proud culture. Um, Spanish is spoken uh, primarily. There are English speakers, but but I mean, no one's gonna give you a hard time for for the way you speak. And I think people in Puerto Rico are, are viewed as very hospitable. Um, and that's, that's, I think I'm, 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 I love it here. I'm not going back to the States unless someone pays me a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. Um, you know, one thing I've noticed in, in different uh, places, like um, uh, taking the temperature of like, let's say British Columbia versus California versus uh, Mexico, like the lawyers in those different areas, like there's there's a different, um, I don't know, culture, feel, uh, risk tolerance in terms of those lawyers and how they feel about legal technology and using it, you know? And so like in, a, you know, like where I'm living now in Vancouver in British Columbia, it's, um, you know, there's some interest, but it's more like theoretical they don't really feel the pressure of taking on technology to to do stuff as much as let's say california where uh because there's more competition more lawyers in in california there's perhaps more of an open-mindedness to uh legal tech what what is the sense of that in in puerto rico no i i think it's it's all over the place but i'll give you two examples there are some law firms there's one law firm in particular that brought down here uh, you're probably familiar with them, Legal Sifters, which is uh, an AI company based out in um, Pittsburgh. Um, mm-hmm. They do contract reviews using AI. Basically, you 
pull up the contract and their software will identify portions of that particular contract um, and just review it faster, right? Uh, they're not the only company out there. So that's one company, one law firm that does that. I don't know of any other law firms that actually incorporates that type of level of technology into their practice. Um, and just yesterday I was uh, in federal court sitting down next to uh, an attorney my age and we're talking and I'm like, how do you manage your day job? Like, How do you do daily, basic, daily work? And she just says, well, I have a timekeeper. And then I enter everything into the court system, which we, in federal court, whenever we have to file our vouchers to um, get paid, you need to enter it into their own system, right? Um, so what do you do? She just like pulls out a piece of paper and starts writing on it. I'm like, you do know that if that gets wet, you lose everything, right? And she's like, yeah, but that's the best way I can deal with it. She's not uh, like a person born in 1960. Uh, <laughs> she, she's Gen, y, Gen X. She is fairly uh, technologically advanced. She, she has every single app out there. But when it comes to her practice, for her, that conversion, right, what she would do, to get food delivered, she won't necessarily do. And when it comes to her practice, um, I asked her why, why are you not using? And I showed her the product I use, which is Clio. She's like, but is that free? I'm like, no, it's not free, but it, it, it creates all these other opportunities. And, and I pay X amount of money a month. And she's like, I'm not paying that. I'm like, so you rather lose a piece of paper and risk it and, and she's like, yeah, I'm, I won't lose it. So you see, now you have these two extremes, right? And everything in the middle. When I tried to promote my company, there was a serious um, disconnect with what technology can do and the aversion of lawyers. And I can see that when I sold them or tried selling them the service, it was really difficult for them to visualize something other from what they have. Um, I blame in a way myself because my product wasn't 10 times better than what they had, which other products actually are. But it showed you how difficult it is for a corporation or an entity or a law firm to actually integrate these tools into their practice. Um, And that doesn't mean that if you don't show them, they won't use it. It's more of I don't have time. I don't have the investment to actually go out the time investment. To go out and explore the market, I'm not sure if this fits my particular practice, um, and that's that's one of the things I'm doing now. I'm, I'm starting to record these mini pro, mini videos in order to show people what technology uh, you can adapt into your law practice. I, I did one last week regarding automation, right, and how to use automation tools, and I I came up with different examples of how to do that. Just for the for the effort, I mean, just trying to um, promote technology into the adoption of technology because I know there's people interested in. It's just that they don't have the time to explore it. And if there's some way that they can then digest that for them and make it work, and they don't have to deal with it, then that's something they would do. But I see a lot of hes- hesitation uh, on that learning curve still. So it sounds like the um, the climate there is 
pretty much the way it is across most of the United States, which is that, you know, attorneys sometimes have difficulty starting up with new technology and, uh, you know, they take convincing. That and they need, they need it to be a better way than what I have right now. It has to be better than what I'm using. I have to be the pen and paper and it has to be cheaper for them to get over that. So it's, it's, it's quite, it's quite a challenge, but you're true. I mean, this isn't unique to the Puerto Rico market. And you're, but you're so right that it's, it's a weird thing that when it comes to consumers uh, and even the same person, like you were saying that lawyer, when she has her consumer hat on, like maybe she uses Uber Eats to have, you know, food like delivered to her house. Um, but for, for some reason, when it comes to putting your lawyer hat on, it's a different story. Because what she would have to do before Uber Eats or whatever app is to actually get dressed and drive over there. Yeah. So what you have now is what do you do? What do you do right now? Pen and pencil. So what's better than that? Well, it has to be that much better because it's very simple for her. Pen and pencil, don't lose it. She has a notebook she carries around all the time. So that's the, that's the challenge, right? That's how do you, in that use case, right? And I'm not saying that her only thing is that. I'm, I'm pretty sure that if I sit down with her, I can go through a flow chart of stuff that I can identify potentials, but each particular step may cost $20, $30, $50 a month as opposed to, no, it's free. I have it all the time. So be it. Maybe I'm, maybe she's not the ideal target market for me. Do I want to make everyone that way? So it's one of those trade-offs, right? Do I have the time to sit down with everyone and do that? That's another question. Well, I mean, they're interesting questions. I mean, on the one hand, doing uh, like user testing and, and talking to users directly is invaluable, right? In, in building, in building a, a truly helpful tool. On the other mm -hmm. hand, I mean, one, one advantage with any technology startup, including a legal tech one right now, is that you can work from anywhere and your customers can be from anywhere. So the fact, you know, that, that you're in Puerto Rico doesn't limit you at all from growing a customer base that could be across the world, right? I, I agree 100%. Then you run into regulation issues. <laughs> yep. Depending on your particular uh, product. So then we go into this great conversation as to, whoa, is that, are you, are you for real? Like right now there's a case that's going to happen up or, uh, regarding the um, Florida bar or some Florida attorneys that, that filed an injunction or, or, or a complaint against this app that's fighting tickets. And even right. though, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was, I'm just agreeing with you. I, I just, yep, you refresh my memory about that. Yeah, so they have a hearing coming up in March, if I'm not mistaken. You have to think about it. Is, 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 is that for real? Yes, it is. Um, there's other examples that I can come up with right now off the top of my head. I don't want to get involved with any pending lawsuits and get sued. But, I mean, there are many examples out there that, as a profession, the guild actually chooses to protect itself. 
for whatever reason. I mean, and that's a mentality that is, and, and that's the truth. And the ABA has passed resolutions encouraging the changing of the regulations, but there's, there's, there's a real push not to allow that. There's a push to protect the industry. So there you go. You may have the ability to launch a product from Puerto Rico, from Vancouver, from Ohio, but once you cross borders, you have to be aware of the risk involved in each particular system. So then you design a product that's cheap, not cheap, but that doesn't get close to that line in order for you to prove your theory, right? That's when you get into these products that maybe look similar across the board. I'll give you an example. In Puerto Rico, we have we had at one point like seven or eight different companies, startups launching food deliveries. I mean, how many of those do you really need? So yeah. it's one of those things that you're like, I understand that. Uh, but in order to make real progress, there needs to be an adoption level in like a sandbox, what, what Utah is doing, right? It provides you with some protection from that particular type of, um, um, from some particular type of uh, lawsuits or, or, or cover. And I think that's what the profession needs, right? Not necessarily, not the profession, actually the industry. Uh, not just lawyers, but everyone involved with the legal operating system. We sort of need to realize what we are and hopefully benefit more people. Um, but that's just me, the one that chose to go to do an additional year of study and get more in that to study human rights. What do I know? Well, it sounds like you know a lot already <laughs> <laughs> about about the challenges and the opportunity here. Um, in that regard, what, what do you like? What do you think about five years from now? Do you think that there's going to be the adoption of, of these tools and things will get better. You'll have like chat pro chatbots providing advice. There'll be online dispute resolution that'll have really taken, um, been taken up by, by courts. Like wh wh what do you think the future holds? What I want and what I think. Okay. So I want courts to be an API. I want courts to, not be the source arbiter of all disputes. I think that we can come up with automatic ways or use technology in ways that can facilitate transactions without having to involve the courts. Um, and I think that that can be accomplished with today's technology, right? It's not that complicated to think about it. I want attorneys to allow others to be part of the system so that more people can receive protections from the law. But I think I'm just wishful thinking, look at the past five years and where has progress occurred. There hasn't been, unfortunately, these mind blowing jumps from point A to point B. We have great technology in this space. Most of it is starting, right, being adapted but the technology has been around for a while. It's been implemented into our industry and it hasn't taken off to the way that people expected. I'll give you an example, data analytics and the ability to predict or understand how a judge may rule 
is mind-blowing to me. It allows you to strategize in a way that has never been able to do before. So that, that technology um, is game-changing in a way. But I've seen so much difficulty for startups and legacy um, products to have that, I don't know, automatic adoption of such a great tool. And for me, it's, 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 it's interesting to see that. I don't know if it's cost-related or basically I think it's because we as lawyers know more than math. We will go with the gut instinct before seeing the data. Unfortunately, we suffer from that um, know-it-all syndrome sometimes. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I think that people that are used to dealing with gut feelings when it comes to a particular thing miss out on the opportunity. They're blinded. We have a silo that it's difficult to break. What do I think will happen? I hope, honestly, that the experiments out in California and that they get approved along with Utah and Arizona expand to the entire uh, United States. And I hope that there are other ways of getting involved um, and get value, right? One of the things that, that, that this creates, right, this adoption of technology is to rethink the legal education space. Um, when I went to law school, the purpose of it was to pass the bar exam. When I did my master's, I saw how at the American University School of Law, Washington School of Law, they prepare students with the fundamentals, but they also provided them with a bunch of electives and in which um, you didn't have to become a litigator. I grew up in a small, I went to a small law school and everyone, like it's, it's normal for you to graduate to become a litigator, um, not necessarily an in-house counsel, not necessarily a non-practicing attorney. Um, so, so that space needs to rethink if there's a space for these new professions that may come up with, right? Legal data analysts, um, those who speak data science, those who speak AI, and that can be integrated into a law firm model to facilitate and to improve business models. And in relation to an attorney, how, how are they going to get compensated? There's, there's a great opportunity, and I, I'm very proud of being part of the discussion. I'm very excited to speak with you because I've, I've been tracking your progress, and it's, it's really great talking to other people because, hey, I'm in Puerto Rico, and I'm one of the few people down here that, that understands how changes in technology may improve what we, we're doing. Um, so it's, I'm very grateful to be in the spot where I am right now. I'm not very optimistic as to the legal profession adopting technology if it perceives it as a threat. But mm. I mean, we need to change. Smoking was cool until it wasn't, right? So <laughs> maybe it has to be a top-down approach. Unfortunately, we're in a profession that there's 50 different regulators from 50 states. And that's that's the biggest challenge. How do you get everything done at once? And I don't think I don't see that happening in five years for sure. But I mean, I could be surprised, and I'm hopeful. 
I'm always hopeful. Well, that's great to hear, Diego. I'm, I'm hopeful too. I, I'm, you know, hoping for the best and not necessarily planning for the worst, but maybe planning for, um, you know, things to not change too much. But I hope I'm wrong. Well, um, I mean, you can always move to Puerto Rico. You have to, <laughs> you have to plan for the worst um, because you may get hit with, I don't know, locusts may be coming soon <laughs> here. So. Yeah. Well, thank you, Diego. I, I really loved getting to uh, get to know you better. And uh, I look forward. To, yeah, I look forward to seeing you in, in April. Um, and also, you know, learning more about how you're helping legal tech to break out in Puerto Rico. Cause I Thank believe, you, I believe you could do it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, we're all working in the same direction and I'm grateful to be part of this with so many other people that have so many great experiences and things to accomplish. But I think we're, this is the best part. I think we're starting. A few of us have been in this industry, not for the, name recognition meaning not because it's cool to be in legal tech but because we do believe in it and there's so many people out there that are daily doing stuff and i'm really grateful that i i can i get to meet and interact with other people i have no money but i have a lot of twitter friends and every one of them gives me a lot more than than just uh they give me hope they give me passion and they give me drive and i'm grateful to share that with everyone that wants it well you know, with, with tools like Twitter and, and Facebook and all, it really has, it, you know, you're completely, you know, I totally agree with you that it has very much shrunk the size of the world and uh, the ability for us to, to have friends uh, all over. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, speaking of that, how, how can people follow uh, what you're up to and keep in touch with you? Yeah, so the best way is Twitter, Diego Alcala, D-I-E-G-O. A-L-C-A-L-A, -A -A, and then P-R at the end from Puerto Rico. That's the fastest way, or you'll look me up at Diego Alcala in LinkedIn or in Facebook, Diego Alcala dash Legal Tech. That's the last thing I did recently, and hopefully I'm able to put some fun stuff in there. But certainly Twitter would be the fastest way to getting in touch with me. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Diego, for being my guest today. And uh, thank you all for listening to our podcast, Puerto Rican Legal Tech is on the Rise with Diego Alcala. Again, this is Tom Martin. I want to, again, thank GLSA for sponsoring. Remember, joining GLSA is just a good way for solos and small firms to increase their business. And you can check us out at glsaonline.org. Thanks again, Diego. Thank you for having me. And see you all next month.